welcome. I'm glad that you guys are joining us today, wherever you are. Um, we're going to start something new today, but before we do that, I have to read something that uh, my mom told me I had to read, okay? This is a, a, a thank you card from my mom, Doris Arlene Stockholm in Beaumont, Texas, otherwise known as Meemaw. Um, she calls me about every day lately, and every day she calls, someone else from Whitestone has sent her a card. Or I think she got a basket of fruit the other day. And she said, what are you telling those people I'm starving to death down here or something? No, Mom. People in Tennessee are just nice that way. And so um, my mom sent this to the church and asked me if I'd read it to you. It just says I'm so grateful, and it's full of glitter, and it's all over my notes now. I probably won't be able to read anything. Dear church, to all the folks that sent me cards with all the sweet messages, thank you. They really made my long and lonely days better God bless you all from my mom. And so, church, I just I can't tell you enough how much acts of kindness like that, and not just for my mom, but just people need them. So keep reaching out. Thanks for being thoughtful. Um, I greatly appreciate it. I know my mom does as well. All right, we are done with the Sermon on the Mount. We, we knocked that out of the park. I mean, nobody struggles with enemy love or having bad thought lives or anything like that. We got it mastered, right? Okay, so we're moving on. And uh, we're going to, we spent a couple weeks on Palm Sunday and then Easter, and so this is kind of the first normal Sunday, although none of them seem normal, uh, we've had in a while to start something new. And so um, Brock and I are excited about um, spending the next six or eight weeks kind of reacquainting ourselves with the Apostle Paul. Um, as, as we look around and we see how crazy life is, um, and then we try to draw some correlations to pastimes in our lives, I, I've got nothing to draw from that even remotely resembles this. And, and so when you look at the life of Paul and the radical changes that happened over the course of his life and how much he has impacted the church throughout the generations, it seems like that would be a good place to start. And so specifically, we're going to be spending the next six or eight weeks on four of his letters that he wrote towards the end of his life. But if you've heard me teach, preach, talk at all, you know it's very difficult for me to just jump into something without first having some context for it. Okay, And so um, I think maybe the best thing we can do this morning is to kind of look Big picture at the life of Paul, the major chapters of his life, before we just parachute into one section, because I think this will give us some context, okay? So, so I spent better part of the last week just kind of just, just foraging through the book of Acts and, and Paul's letters and trying to piece together what, what did this guy's life really look like. And, and he's almost so familiar to us. We all have our favorite passages from his letters but who was the guy? Who was Paul? And that's going to lay the foundation for this series, okay? So this is what we know about Paul, and all of these dates are kind of, they're estimates, okay? No one knows exactly what his birthday was or what day he died, but he was born sometime in, the, in 5 to 10 AD. He was born in a, in a town called Tarsus. That's in the present-day country of Turkey. 
Okay, that's where, that's where he's from. He grew up as a Pharisee. He trained under the, the teacher Gamaliel. Gamaliel. I don't know how you say his name, but it's okay. He, 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 Gamaliel. That's how they say it in Maynardville. I don't know how you're really supposed to say it. But anyway, anyway. Paul was a Pharisee's Pharisee, okay? Everything he did, he did with zeal, with fervor. He was about 30 years old um, when Christ was crucified and resurrected. And that's really where we meet Saul of Tarsus. Later he would change his name to Paul, but we meet him shortly after the New, the New Testament church is founded. I think the first time we see him is at the stoning of Stephen. As he's, he's, just, he's a young man standing there holding the, the, the cloaks of those who are stoning Stephen. And that's our introduction to Saul of Tarsus. Later that year, sometime within that next 12-month period, we see him again. And he's on the road to Damascus. And he's, he's gone with letters, with names of Christians in Damascus that he's going to arrest and drag off. It says... It said Right there in the book of Acts, it says that, Paul, that Saul ravaged the church. He was, he was zealous in his pursuit of, those, of the followers of the way. But Saul meets Jesus somewhere around AD 33 or 34. He meets the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And you've all heard the story. It changes everything for Saul. He spends the next three years of his life in isolation. He goes to Arabia. He go, we don't know where he went exactly, but he, went, he didn't go directly into ministry. He waited three years before he ever went to meet the other disciples, the other apostles. So he's probably about 33, 34 years old at this time, and everything he knew about his life before was gone. Everything he had invested himself in was garbage, we would find out later. That's how he viewed it in light of his pursuit of Jesus. For about the next 10 years, he ministered in and around Antioch. Okay, 10 years of, of ministry doing who knows what. He didn't write anything during that time. He hadn't written any of his epistles yet. But thanks to Barnabas, he was welcomed in to the family of faith, and he started getting some respect of those around him. So for 10 years, 13 years, he's been a believer before he starts the work that we really came to know him by. Because for about the next 10 years, he's probably 40 to 50 years old. He spends 10 years of his life on missionary journeys. There's three of them recorded in the book of Acts. Paul talks about them in his letters the first missionary journey took about a year and a half. year and a half, he's on the road with Barnabas. He comes back after that year and a half, and he and Barnabas do some stuff around Antioch again, and he writes his first epistle. He writes the book of Galatians, or the letter to the church at Galatia. That's his first recorded work. Right about that time, there's the Jerusalem Council happens when they give some instruction about how the 
how the Gentile churches are supposed, how much of the law are they supposed to follow? And Paul is involved in that. And about that time, he and Barnabas have a fight. Not maybe a fist fight, but they have a disagreement over John Mark and they separate. Which leads him into his second missionary journey. It lasted two and a half years. You can read about that from Acts 15 to Acts 18. And during that time, Paul wrote two more letters. He wrote 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Okay. After that two and a half year period, he went back to Jerusalem for a little while and then went right into a five year mission trip. The third journey was five years long. He spent three of those years in the town of Ephesus. While he was there, he wrote the first letter to the Corinthian church. He wrote 1 Corinthians. He also wrote a second letter, a letter that's lost, that went to the Corinthian church. And the latter part of that journey, he went north to Macedonia, and he, he wrote 2 Corinthians. And then he ended that whole trip by wintering in the town of Corinth, where he wrote the letter to the Romans. And so during that 10-year period of time, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, he wrote six of the letters that comprise our New Testament, okay? And so in a nutshell, Paul's life so far, first 30 years, Pharisee of Pharisees, radically converted, spent three years in isolation, 10 years of local ministry, and 10 years on the road, okay? And then everything was going to change. It's like Paul had this rhythm to his life, much like you and I had a rhythm to our life. Good or bad, we had a rhythm to our life that we were used to. It was kind of normal, right? Everything was about to change for Paul. It was the year AD 57, and it was like God pushed a pause button on his life. Much like COVID-19 has pushed the pause button on all of our lives. Everything that was normal before is not normal. Paul, it's like we're captives in our own homes. See, to that point in, in his life, Paul's life had been like, like a five-act play. Like act one, the Pharisee. Act two, the conversion. Act three, early ministry. Act four, the journeys. And then an unexpected intermission. It's like, you're not supposed to have an intermission that close to the end of the show, but that's what happened for Paul. And that's the title of the series that we're entering into today. Because during this intermission time, when God interrupted everything in Paul's life, Paul's ministry continued. Paul's ministry did not stop just because he was taken captive. See, for the next four years of Paul's life, Four years, he was going to be in prison in one way or another. It started when he went back to Jerusalem. And you, you can read about this. It's a, it's a fascinating story. It's in Acts 21. I think I am going to read that. Acts 21, verses 27 through 36. And this is what the Word says. When the seven days were almost completed, Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, that's Paul, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people 
and the law in this place. Moreover, he, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the, and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another... And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. And then it goes on and it says, as he's being brought up the steps, he asked to speak to the people. He's being beaten, he's being arrested, and in that moment, he stops Ask for permission, can I speak to him? And they let, him, they let him preach from the steps. And in the process of being arrested, he told his story. It was, it was beautiful. And over the course of the next couple of chapters, you see him do that over and over again. Paul's kept in prison there in Caesarea for two years. There's no record of him writing anything during those two years, but he took every opportunity... You can read about it in Acts 23, 24, 25. He took every opportunity to make his case, to make the case for Christ wherever he was. His bondage was not an excuse to not to. It was an opportunity that he wouldn't have had otherwise. That's the way he lived his life. There's another passage in, in Acts 24 where Felix is the governor of Caesarea. And he, Felix keeps calling Paul to him and because he enjoyed the conversation with Paul. Paul, Paul ap appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. It's like every time they try it, they say we're gonna, there's a plot to kill him. And so he appeals to Caesar. He gets moved somewhere else. Two years of just starting and stopping, starting and stopping. It's enough to drive a person crazy, wouldn't you think? I mean, do you feel like that? Like in this season of your life maybe? Like, like I know the chains are different, but it's, it's maddening the things that you used to be able to do, things that used to be normal that you can't do now. And Cody mentioned it earlier. It's just get the weight of it gets so oppressive, right? It gets so oppressive when we just think about all the things we can't do. My fear for some of, some of you people, the, the reason I say I want to see your faces is because I want, to, I want to remind you that you're not alone. You are not alone. This will pass. I don't know when. But Jesus is still Jesus. God is still God. The church is still moving. It's active. Maybe the voices that you're listening to, the voices of despair, the things that are making the walls feel like they're closing in a little bit, maybe those aren't the real voices. Maybe we need to have the attitude of Paul that says, okay, enough with what I can't do. What can I do? 
What honors God today? What is the next right thing? Church, our bondage is not an excuse. It's an opportunity. It depends on what we do with it. After two years at Caesarea, finally, he gets, he gets sent to Rome. And guess what happens? They put him on a boat. He gets shipwrecked on the island of Malta, gets bit by a snake. It's like frying pan, fire. You know, it's like, oh, says two years in prison. Oh, how about shipwreck, near death, all for the privilege of finally getting to Rome where he finds himself under house arrest for two years. Two years into a four-year prison term, he's finally in Rome, but some pretty cool stuff happens. If you read in Acts 28, 28, 16, it says this, when they finally got there, it says, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. And then Acts 28, 30 and 31. Very last two verses in the book of Acts. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Guys, during this two-year period of time, the Apostle Paul wrote four letters that are in our New Testament. The book of Ephesians the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon. They're all letters. Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus where he had spent three years. The book of Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. Same with the church at Colossae. And Philemon was written to a man by the name of Philemon who was a slave owner whose Slave Onesimus had, had run away and had made his way to Paul. Guys, these four letters present us with a, a composite picture of Jesus, of the church, of the Christian life, and how all three of those things connect. For the next four, six, eight weeks... We're going to take a look at each of those letters just a little bit. We can't go through all of everything in those, but we are going to look at those and ask ourselves the question, okay, this is what Paul did in his confinement. When the pause button was hit on his life, this is how the kingdom went forward for him. How's it supposed to go forward for us? What, what, does, what does God want for his church, Whitestone Church, you, me, your family, what does he want your life to look like? What's the kingdom pursuit supposed to be until the intermission is over? I think it's kind of cool to think about late in the year of the year 8062. You're coming up on the end of Paul's house arrest. These four letters are done. And there's four guys that are going to deliver these letters to those places. I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of the Lord of the Rings. Any, anybody like that? Some, of, some people think it's kind of weird. Uh, I, I kind of like it, okay? I kind of like it. Kayla and I went back and started watching again yesterday. But, but there's, there's that scene 
in the, in the, towards the end of the first movie, when they're, they're all there kind of at Rivendell, and, and they kind of create this fellowship of the ring, okay? And, and it's just this motley crew, that's four little short people with hairy feet, four hobbits. There's Frodo, there's Sam, there's Mary, and there's Pippin, okay? And then there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's this gangly-looking wizard, okay, with this awful gray hair. This is more white, okay, just in case you were wondering. His name's Gandalf. There's one elf who's probably the coolest one, right? He's the guy that shoots the bow and arrow. Legolas. There's a dwarf. Gimli? Is that his name? Jim Gimli? Gimli. Okay, and then there are two people. Aragorn, who, who turns out to be the king, and then this Boromir guy who's a loser, and he, he, he gets killed off pretty quick. Okay, so these guys are the unlikely group that are going to save the world. Okay, they have this ring, and they have to take it to destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom, okay? And the whole trilogy is built on the, the adventures of this group of people. Why do I even talk about that? Well, it's because I had this big hole in my notes and I need to take up time. No. No. J, J. Vernon McGee, in his commentary about this, painted this picture that made me think of the Lord of the Rings when he talked about these four letter bearers. Tychicus carried the epistle to the Ephesians. Epaphroditus carried the epistle to the Philippians. Epaphras, was having, he was carrying the epistle to the Colossians, and Onesimus, the slave, was taking his letter back to his, his owner, Philemon. These four guys have these letters that, if they were to be found today, the, the original, those letters, you know how valuable they would be? If those if the Roman Empire had known that these guys had those letters and what those letters would empower the church to do for generations to come, those guys would have been arrested. Those, those documents would have been destroyed. God uses the most unlikely people to carry his message to the world. Guys, we are still the letter bearers for Jesus. All of this stuff, all of his teachings, all of Paul's, Paul's writings, everything about the church, guess who is supposed to take it to the world? It's not a bunch of dwarves and elves. We might be a motley crew, but it's the church's job, right? Listen to what J. Vernon McGee said. This quartet of men left Rome in the year AD 62, bound for the province of Asia, which was located in what, is now what was then designated Asia Minor and is currently called Turkey. These men had on their per persons four of the most sublime compositions of the Christian faith. These precious documents would have been invaluable if the originals were in existence today. Rome did not comprehend the significance of the writings by an unknown prisoner. If she had, these men would have been apprehended and the documents seized." This morning, as we start this intermission series, I want to look at one passage from the, from the book of Ephesians. Just one passage, that, and it's really just a couple of verses, but I'm going to have to read some context for you to get there. But it's from Ephesians chapter 3. And it's Paul, in my mind, it's Paul saying, this is why I'm doing this. This is why the, the book of Ephesians is so important. And we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 3. 
And we'll just start right there in, in verse 1. Because Paul said that, are you guys, are y'all with me? Okay, I'm sorry for the history lesson, okay? But we're towards the end of Paul's life. Most of his best days are behind him. And he's still getting it done. He's writing to these people in the city of Ephesus where he had spent three years. The first time he was there, it was a brief visit, not much happened. Second time he was there, his ministry was on fire. This was the time when, like, handkerchiefs that, he had, that had touched his skin were healing people. And demons were getting cast out of people. This is the place. These are the people that he's writing to. This is important to him. It's a Gentile church. That means it's made up of people like you and me, who are not of Jewish heritage. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, now the, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And listen to this, verse 6. This mystery, here's the answer, this mystery is that the Gentiles, you, me, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. That we're all part of the church. Of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And this is the verse that I wanted to, the one verse I wanted to talk to you about. Verse 10. It's the middle of a sentence. But it, it just kept flashing to me. It says this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. You could stop right there. That's pretty good. So that through the church, you and me, not a government, not an empire, not a building, but the ecclesia of Jesus, the church of Jesus, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known. But you know what really got me? This is what it says next. The manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What does that mean? As you look around the world today, do you sense that there's something bigger going on? That there are powers at work? That this isn't normal? Stick with me for just a second. I want to finish this. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Paul is saying, hey, there's a mystery. 
The mystery is that you're all included. You're all included in Christ. In the church. In the same church that Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against. Gates of hell seems kind of like a supernatural kind of ruler and authority kind of bad thing, right? It's not going to prevail against the church. So that through the church, that church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Who are those rulers and authorities? See, Paul would reference them just a little bit later in the book of Ephesians. This might sound familiar to you. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Guess what those rulers and authorities are doing? They're looking at the church. Because the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God is revealed to them through the church. Does that blow your mind at all? See, there's only one creator. Okay? Only one that's omniscient. Only one that's all-knowing. And that is God Almighty Yahweh. That is Him. Everything else, all those rulers and authorities, they were all created beings. And they don't know everything. And how are they tuning in to the wisdom of God to figure out what God's doing? By looking at the church, people. In times like this, the church is not supposed to tuck its head into its shell and act like it's scared of everything. Because rulers and authorities in heavenly places are looking at the church to see the wisdom of God. This, a time like this, does not give us an excuse to not be the church. It makes the church all the more important. I'm not sure exactly what any of that means. <laughs> Can I just be honest with you? I don't have a... But it, I cannot deny that the church is the central figure in that sentence. This church, the church... Government's not going to get us through this. There are not enough stimulus checks in the world to display the manifold wisdom of God. That's the church's job. How are we going to react to the intermission? I want to close with this. I'm just going to read Paul's prayer over you and then I'm done. So band, you guys can come on back up. Because this is a prayer that Paul prayed right after this. In fact, he says, it's the very next verse, verse 14. He says, for this reason. For what reason? For, for what I just said. For all that stuff about the mystery and the church. And for this reason. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell 
in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever.